0: You know, I was at Cross the first week of uh, January, student missions conference with about 7,500 young people there thinking about the call to missions. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. So I I missed, uh, I had to catch online, our brother Ben's excellent sermon from January 6th and thought I was going to be back in the pulpit on the 13th. The Lord sent me a snow day. I was thankful for that. (laughs) Sent me a snow day. I ain't even mad. So here it is, January 20th. And we're gathered together again. I, I really did miss you guys. A couple things before we get to God's Word this morning. Uh, one is, if you're part of the, the Titus 2 group, uh, that's some of the older ladies of the church, uh, we meet with them once a month to encourage them and equip them to disciple some of the younger women of the church. Uh, I have our new books for that group. So if you just want to see me over here, uh, there's a shopping bag. with. Uh, that's really exciting. I'm going to go ahead and give those to you right now. Was that you that, that hollered? There you go. All right, somebody back there. Okay, pass them along. Um, see the, the, those books over there. Uh, also, if you didn't get one when you came in, there's a new sermon card. Um, so feel free to grab one of these on your way out. Keep it in your Bible or what have you. Pray for uh, the Word as we study and hear it together. Use it in your quiet time to prepare to hear the Word on Sundays. So there's a new sermon card there as well. Last and certainly not least, um, church family, let's welcome this morning... Um, the number of new members in the life of the church. You've got 18 new members. So if, you, if you're a new member, let me just have you stand wherever you are. Any, any new members here among us, praise the Lord. Amen. 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 Excellent, excellent. So after the communion uh, this morning, I'm going to invite you as new members to just come up front here. And uh, when we dismiss, we're just going to give you the right hand of fellowship and welcome you to the life of the church. So, uh, so glad to have you part of the family. Well, this morning, beloved, we are beginning a new sermon series, a topical series uh, on spiritual warfare. Now, if you're with us this morning, uh, we're doing something a little bit different than we normally do. Uh, Normally, I'll take a book of the Bible and we'll just preach through it section by section. Uh, This series is going to be a little bit more topical. We're going to sort of bounce around the Bible a little bit to see what the whole Bible says about various aspects of spiritual warfare. Now, the most important thing in spiritual warfare is that you have a sword, that you have a Bible. Uh, A couple of brothers coming down the aisle with Bibles. If you need one, raise your hand. We'll be happy to, to give you one this morning. So raise your hands high there. So why do a series on spiritual warfare? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. One is, is there's so much bad teaching out there about it. On both ends of the spectrum. So you have folks who act like everything that goes on is some demonic attack against them. They're out of milk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're like, devil, you is a lie, You know, no, you didn't go to the grocery store. <laughs> you know what I mean? So on the one hand, you got folks who think everything is spiritual warfare and they see the devil under every rock. Yeah. On the other hand, we have Christian folks who act as if the supernatural really isn't real who act as if there is no devil, if there, are no, 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 there is no warfare going on, it's all down to a matter of sort of personal effort and self-improvement and things of that sort. So there are errors at both poles and, and it's important to sort of do this series in order to counter the errors. Well as you might guess then, the truth is we are in a war. We don't get no break from that war. It's raging all around us, as we'll see in a moment, to some extent raging in us as well. So you don't want to sort of try to live the Christian life without some basic understanding, some good understanding of the warfare that we're engaged in. Theologians say that before Jesus comes, we describe the church as the church militant. It's the church at war. When he comes, we'll be the church triumphant. The warfare will be over, and we will only and always enjoy the victory in its fullness. So we can't be the church militant unless we know something about the military engagement we are involved in. Now, the most basic reason to do this series is because we get shot and wounded and hurt in this warfare harassed, and bothered by our enemy. In our marriages, with our children, in the workplace, on social media, everywhere you go, you're involved in this warfare. And so I thought it would be good for us to take a few weeks to, to think this through and to get our minds around what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare and our victory in it and our part in it. And to do that this morning... I want us to just do some basic things to understand the war. We're going to look at three texts this morning. Each text goes together with a point. Uh, If you're taking notes this morning, the first point is this. We have three enemies. Three enemies in our warfare. We'll see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Second point is this. We must choose sides in the war. We must choose sides sides in the war. We'll see that in 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17. So the first point comes from Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. The second point comes from 1 John 2 15 to 17. Finally, to win the war we have to put ourselves to death. To win the war we have to put ourselves, spiritually speaking, to death. And we're going to see that in Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 to 25. Galatians five, sixteen to twenty five. Let me pray for us and we'll dig into God's word. Father, we do pray that you would help our understanding now. Help us to understand the warfare that we're engaged in. Help us to understand the victory that we have in Christ. He's won it all. Help us to understand the, the strategies we need through this series in order to stand and to flourish in that victory. Holy Spirit, breathe upon the Word this morning. Make it alive to us. Quicken us. Change us, Lord. Change us. And strengthen us for the battle we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me first in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Ephesians is a wonderful letter about the Christian life. The first three chapters really lay down some basic Christian teaching or doctrine. The Second three chapters, chapters 4 to 6, lay down a lot of teaching about living the the Christian life. One of the interesting things about Ephesians is it is sort of, in a couple of places, the the most developed teaching about spiritual warfare in the Bible. One of the passages that that begins to speak to that warfare, which helps us understand that we have three enemies, is Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. This is what the Bible says there. And you were dead Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We can do a month of sermons on just those three verses, but notice here that we have three enemy combatants. The first enemy there is described as the world. See it in verse 2? We were following the course of this world. The second enemy that's described in verse 2 is the devil following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then the third enemy is the flesh, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the, the Christians' three enemies. These are the ones which we are in warfare against. When the Bible speaks of the world, it uses the term in two ways. Sometimes it just means the creation itself, birds, trees, the planet, the stars, the moon, so on. But it uses it in a second sense, too, where it refers not to the physical creation, but it refers to what we might call the world system. The sort of pattern of ideas and values and philosophies and actions that that constitute the the life that is lived apart from God. That this world is a a system that trains, that disciples, that that influences, and and that even enslaves. So Paul could say over Colossians chapter 2 that the elemental principles, the ABCs of the world are looking to take us captive. And indeed, the text says, before Christ, we follow the course, the pattern, the ways of the world. That's our first enemy. But our second enemy, listed in the text here, is the devil. Now, can I just say, the devil is real. Satan is real. Demons are real. That the Bible's worldview is supernatural, not just natural. Since the Enlightenment, we have lived with this encounter with naturalism and empiricism, the idea that all that really is, is is what you see and touch, is nature. And all that really can be known is what you can measure empirically. Well, beloved, that's fine for some Enlightenment philosophers and some scientists to get all off on, but that ain't at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the most real things are the unseen things that the world of the spirit is real that that there is a demon a devil who fell from heaven in rebellion against God who wars against God's people Jesus says it this way in John 10:10 10, 10, that he has come to do three things steal, and to kill and to destroy He is malignant, he is malevolent, he is evil, and he is angry against God and against God's people. Now, there's some other things that we need to know about this devil. He is not equal to God. He is no rival to God. He is a created being. It's not like there are two gods. We're not talking about dualism here. There's one God and there's nobody like him. And This demon be as mad as he wants to. That's right. But God ain't bothered. God ain't vexed. Right. Like little kids throw tantrums in the store because they want something. I love those parents. I, you know, the parents that get all upset, start hollering at the kids. I'd be like, come on, calm down. You the one with the money. <laughs> I love those parents just stand there and look at them. <laughs> Till they feel silly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's what God is. God is looking at the enemy, God is looking at the devil. He's like, I ain't even plus, I ain't bothered. You throw that a little tantrum if you want to. We sing it in the hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. One little word shall fail him, shall cut him down. But he wars against God's people. And then there is another enemy. We've seen the world, we've seen the devil. There is the flesh. This third enemy is not out there. This third enemy is in here. You see, there's a traitor on our side of the line. The sin nature. That's what the Bible is talking about here when it refers to the flesh. It's talking about that part of our nature which, is, which desires sinful things, which, which craves sinful things, which, which wars against God. We have been redeemed if we're Christians. We have been saved if we're Christians. The Spirit of God indwells us if we are Christians and yet this flesh has not finally and forever been put to death. And so there's a traitor behind enemy lines. An agent on the inside working for the enemy. Notice how the text puts it. We were following or carrying, or excuse me, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. One aspect of warfare even in sort of natural warfare, human warfare, is, is called psychological warfare. That's where you try and influence the thinking of the people in the country that you're battling with. In some of the earlier world wars, sometimes planes would fly over enemy cities and drop leaflets. and Those leaflets would be design, designed to terrorize or to undermine. That's what spies are all about. That's what espionage is all about, to get in the other side of the enemy lines and to influence their thinking, influence their policy, influence their elections, influence all kinds of things. I'm just talking about history right now. (laughs) That's what spies do. It's part of the psychological warfare to undermine the other side. Notice what the text says. We were fulfilling the, the passions of the flesh carrying out his desires in body and mind. Our thought life is one of the main battlegrounds in this warfare. Letting your thoughts run wild will not serve your victory in this warfare. Being carried along by your desires will sometimes be working against your victory in this warfare. That's because we've got an enemy within that we do battle with. Now, notice their collective strategy. Might put it together this way. The world tries to make rebellion against God normal. The world tries to make rebellion against God normal. So it embeds rebellion in everything. Satan tries to destroy to direct the world toward deeper obedience and rebellion. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who is manipulating the world system and directing things toward deeper disobedience and deeper rebellion against God. And the flesh tries to convince us that that's what we want. What Satan and the world are offering, that looks really good. That sounds right. Everybody doing it. When you hear that, you know, you need to know you're at war at that very moment. You're at war at that very moment. And they have one goal. It's death. See how the text starts. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And these enemies want to keep you that way. If you're not a Christian, they want to keep you dead in your sins. If you are a Christian, they want to try and bring forth yet little small deaths. They can't take eternal life from you, but they can destroy your enjoyment of it, and and they will harass you in that way. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions. Where have you been underestimating the world's influence in your thinking, your attitudes, your beliefs, or actions? Have you been underestimating the world's influence? I can tell you, if we haven't thought about spiritual warfare in a while, by definition we're underestimating the world's influence. But where is that happening particularly for you? Number two, are there any known areas of disobedience in your life that you should confess and repent are there any known areas of disobedience to God, disobedience to His Word, that you should confess and repent? Because repentance is victory. Continuance and disobedience is the flesh sabotaging your victory. Amen. The third question. What desires do you and I have that we know come from the sinful nature? What desires do we have that we know come from a sinful nature and are we giving into them or killing them? Are we giving in to them or killing them? Number four, do we treat our desires, our influences, and our disobediences as life and death situations? Do we treat our desires, our influences, our disobediences as life and death situations in a spiritual war? Or do we think of them as basically harmless things common to everybody? We have to recognize we're in a war. Every once in a while, I enjoy watching a good Western. And one of my favorite movie scenes comes from a western. I can't even remember the name of it right now. But the, guy, the bad guys are pinned down behind a wagon. And uh, the sheriff has chased them, and, and the sheriff's shooting them, and they're shooting back. And one of the bad guys, the first bad guy, looks at the second bad guy and says, hey, look, you run over there and draw their fire, and I'll shoot at them. And the second bad guy says, no, well, you run over there and draw their fire, and I'll keep shooting at them. And the first guy looks at him and basically says, what, you scared? He said, they ain't got nothing but 22s. And the second bad guy looks at him and says, you ever been shot with a 22? A 22 will kill you too, bro. <laughs> and it's a metaphor for me because I think when we come to the spiritual warfare, it's like we're looking at the world and the devil and the flesh, and we act like, they ain't got nothing but 22s. Like they're just shooting little bullets. The little bullets will kill you too. Little bullets will hurt you too. And so the most fundamental thing we have to do is recognize we are in a war and the stakes are life and death. Amen. The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And it doesn't matter the size of his bullet. You don't want to be shot. All right? So we need to know our enemies. Ask ourselves, do I live as if I am in a war with three subtle and deadly enemies? Which brings us to our second point. We have to choose sides in this spiritual warfare. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, if you're new to the Bibles, um, that's moving toward the back of the Bible. Um, And when I say chapter number, that's the big number on the page. And when I say the verse number, that's the small number. Uh, So 1 John chapter 2, big number, verse 15, small number. And we're going to see there in a minute that we have to choose sides in this spiritual warfare. In 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte of France invaded the country of Switzerland. He conquered Switzerland and added it to his empire until he was defeated at Waterloo. Now, after Napoleon's defeat, the European powers decided that Switzerland should be a neutral country between France and um, Austria. So in 1815, at the Congress of Vienna, the European powers signed a declaration that made Switzerland a perpetually neutral country. So when it comes to international wars, Switzerland, like, my name is Bennett, I ain't in it. I am got nothing to do with that. I ain't fighting with y'all. World War I came. Switzerland was neutral. World War II came, Switzerland remained neutral. And all the skirmishes in between, Switzerland is neutral. Now, that's nice for Switzerland. But in the Christians, spiritual warfare ain't no Switzerland's. There is no declaration that you can make with the world, the flesh, and the devil for perpetual neutrality. It is perpetual conflict. And you have to choose a side. So First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides or lives forever. Now John's saying something here. He's saying, listen, this warfare and the conflict between these two parties, these two parties are irreconcilable. And they're irreconcilable for three, what, for three reasons. Number one, they have irreconcilable loves. Irreconcilable loves. Verse 15. Do not love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A person can either love the world or love God, but not both. The Lord Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, verse 24. You know these words, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So if a person loves the world, which is not from God and is in fact an enemy of God, the world's system, then that person cannot at the same time love God. The love of the Father is not in him. And, and if a person loves God, which means he serves God and honors God and worships God, then that person cannot at the same time in the same way love the world. It's irreconcilable. The world of the world is not in her. James picks this up too. James chapter 4 verse 4. He writes there, you adulterous people don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God. Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Beloved, this is the problem with cool. Too many Christians trying to be cool. And raise your hand if, don't no, raise your hand. But <laughs> but if you know that the world has never defined, or that the church has never defined cool, you already know the problem, don't you? I mean, in the world's eyes, the church is whack. It's dull. I don't know why you don't sleep in and just wait for the football game to come on. I all singing all them old songs and... Sometimes y'all try to be cool. You got strobe lights and smoke machines and all that stuff, but it's corny. The world defines cool, right? And this is why if any time we're drawn after cool and we're drawn after the applause of the world, we want to sort of be respected on their terms, we're in trouble. We're losing the war because friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Doesn't feel like hostility to us. You know why? Because we've just turned our back on God and we're walking away from Him. We're not thinking about it. But that's a hostile gesture. You ever talking to somebody and they turn from you and walk away while you're talking? You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's a picture of what's happening with us. If we're drawn after the world, away from God, God like, hold on. If you're going to hang with them, you can't hang with me. And if you're going to hang with me, you can't hang with them. It's irreconcilable loves. So we don't want to deceive ourselves that just a little pinch of worldliness with my Jesus is all right. As you turn up with the world, Christ is turning that down. No, it's all Jesus all the time. And we have to quit our love affair with the world. Notice now, there's also another reason these are irreconcilable. It's not only irreconcilable loves, but notice, irreconcilable sources. These two approaches to life come from two different sources. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, we've already talked about the world system, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, notice, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Notice now, all that is in the world. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Everything reproduces after its own kind. The world reproduces worldliness. God reproduces godliness. There's nothing in the world system that has God as its source. There's nothing in godliness that has the world as its source. You're not going to grow more godly by trying to do something worldly. <laughs> Sit with this for a minute. There is no philosophy, no set of values, no desires that are a part of the world system that can be traced back to God as its source. Therefore, it cannot be considered independent of God, good. If it didn't come from God, then it came from the world. And if it came from the world, then its nature is to be against God, and the things of God's of God, you can't be friends with it. You can't embrace it. You can't hang with it and entertain it. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the bottom line source of my desires and ambitions in life? Do they come from the world or come from God? Which brings us to the third irreconcilable issue. They have irreconcilable futures. Did you notice that in verse 17? Godliness and worldliness are going in different directions, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. One dies, one lives forever. The world and everything in it will pass away in the judgment. It will come to nothing. It does not come from God, so it cannot return to God. It will be incinerated, as it were, in God's judgment. But God who lives forever and gives eternal life to those who love him, he will abide forever, and those who love him will live forever with him. This means worldliness is short-lived and self-defeating. Side up with the world and you sign your own death certificate. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a way to live forever with God. The text says here that whoever does the will of God lives forever. There's a mistake I don't want you to make. If you're hearing you're not a Christian I don't want you to hear that and to think, okay, that means i got to get everything together. i got to get all my actions right. i, I got to get to this place where I'm doing everything God commands and then God will accept me. That's not the good news. That's bad news. And it's bad news because nobody gets there, gets to God that way. Now, when you hear the the phrase there, whoever does the will of God, think back to what Jesus says in the Gospels when they're asking him, what is the will of God? He says, this is the will of God that you believe on his son. Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is the son of God, born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life that we could not live, and who died in our place on the cross to pay the judgment we deserve, who God raised from the grave three days later, whoever believes on this Jesus is doing the will of God. Whoever trusts that Jesus' righteousness, his perfect obedience, is is provided for us by faith in him, and that Jesus' um, suffering on the cross pays the penalty for our sins through faith in him, And whoever believes that Jesus is coming again to bring a kingdom that will belong to all who trust in him, they are the persons doing the will of God. And from that faith, they are the persons who begin to live for God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, the most fundamental thing God calls you to do is repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus as your personal Savior and God. And follow him in that faith. The promise of this text is, and you will live forever. The bad news in this text is, if you do not do that, and you continue a life apart from Christ, you will die. Not just the physical death that we all die, but what the Bible calls the second death, which is God's final judgment when he sends the unrighteous to hell. We exist as a church to help you make the right choice, to help you avoid God's judgment and to receive God's love through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian or you got questions about what it means to be a Christian, talk to me, talk to the Christian friend who brought you, talk to somebody who has their Bible open right now and look like they know their way around it um, and, and let us encourage you because there's nothing more important than that you should do the will of God. By trusting Jesus, his son. There's are two different futures. And that's why this is an entirely irreconcilable war. Now, one other application to Christians before we move to our final point. Uh, brothers and sisters, there's a sense in which the main expression of spiritual warfare is not demonic possession. It, it's not sort of extraordinary spiritual occurrences. So I don't understand the Bible to teach that, you know, you you go home and stuff is moving off the shelf by itself and, you know, the blinds start to flick and all that stuff. If that happens, I can tell you what to do, leave. (laughs) Because that ain't normal. (laughs) But the main expression of warfare is our battle with worldliness. Loving the world, saving the world, thinking and acting like the world. That's the most widespread and seductive weapon the enemy has. And again, our flesh likes it. Remember that our enemy is subtle. they slick. Satan is described as the most subtle beast in the field. And and, and one of the ways he's slick is is he will convince groups of Christians Christians, that worldliness is a problem over there but not right here. So if you you think you're a Christian on the right, worldliness is a problem to those folks on the left. And if you think you're a Christian on the left, worldliness is a problem to those folks on the right. And if you think you're a Christian in the middle, worldliness is everybody else's problem. But beloved, worldliness occurs across the entire spectrum. There are ways of thinking and believing and acting that come from the world system and not from Christ that, that challenge us all. Satan doesn't care which part of the spectrum you're on, he just cares that you're submitting to worldliness. You don't get no points because you're left or right or middle. Satan like being worried about any church that that defines itself in those kind of worldly categories. I'm a progressive church. I'm a conservative church. Well, we're kind of a moderate church. I'm, we're all, we're an inclusive church and we're what a, listen, the local churches that the enemy fears, hates, and attacks most are not churches on the right, left, or middle. They are churches in their Bibles who come up out of their Bibles and live it in the world. That's the church that Satan hates. And that's the way we escape those worldly categories. Get your nose in the book, get the book in your heart, and then move in obedience to the Word of God. That means all our favorite philosophers, all our favorite TV pundits, all our favorite authors, all our favorite influences on our minds have to be graded and examined and interrogated by the Word of God. Nothing more vital than that Christians across the spectrum learn to chew the, chew the fish and spit out the bones Amen. and have the mind renewed according to the word of God. So think again about your influences. Are they from God or from the world? Do they line up with the book or do they line up with the world system. We must understand we have to choose a side in this warfare, which brings us to our final point. We must put to death our flesh in order to win this war. As we go through this series, we hope to talk about a number of tools and weapons that the Lord gives us in his word and to meditate meditate on them at at greater length. But what I want to close, what I want to do in closing is, is point out something pretty fundamental in all of these texts. I wonder if you noticed it. Well, first, let's look at Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 18. Notice what Paul writes there that really does speak to us about our warfare. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, right? So irreconcilable, right? For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now what I want you to see in each of these passages is something that appears in each of these passages. Verse 17 includes a word that we have seen in every one of our texts. In Ephesians chapter two, verse three, the text says there that we were um, fulfilling the, the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires, the body and the mind. In first John two, sixteen, well, John there is talking about the world. He defines the world there as the, as the desires of the flesh. And here now we come to Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, we see it there again. The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. The battleground is desire. Beloved, none of us can change the world. The world's going to be the world until Jesus comes. And none of us can beat Satan. Christ has already done that. All we need to do is stand in that victory. And in point of fact, Satan ain't everywhere all the time. Most of us ain't even ever going to bump into Satan. The fight is not out there. The fight is in here. The desires of the mind, the desires of the body, the, the passions of the flesh. If, if we want to practically stand in the victory that Christ has purchased for us, again, it's not calling down curses on Satan. It's not trying to fix the world, it, 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 even though we bear witness in the world. The most fundamental place to do the work of spiritual warfare is on our desires. Because if our desires are influenced by the flesh, they will be at war with the Spirit. But if our our desires are influenced by the Spirit, they will be at war with the flesh, and there will be no condemnation in what we desire and do. That's Paul's point in in verses 16 to 18 of of Galatians chapter 5. When you say, well, how do I know whether my desires are, are... Influenced by the flesh or influenced by the spirit. That's the rest of Galatians. Look with me beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Paul is saying, here's how you know you tripping in your sin. (laughs) The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So turn it into a self assessment. The desire that I'm feeling right now, does it produce these things? If it does, it's the flesh. And God is so kind. He's given us his spirit so that we, we can discern the difference between the flesh and the spirit. You know, you're arguing with your, your spouse or you're arguing with your coworker, And a little bubble forms over your head, a thought. And you're ready to say it. But there's a little voice saying, now don't say that. And you got a decision to make right then, don't you? And you know, as you are saying what you are saying, that you are wrong in saying it. That's the spirit, if you're a Christian, making you aware that you're behaving in a fleshly way. He call you. Y'all ain't married. He ain't even a Christian. But he look good. He sound good. You know, say, hey, let's, let's go out. I mean, let me take you to dinner. And a little voice like, no, 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 no. You shouldn't even have picked up the phone. But, but the flesh be like, it's just dinner. <laughs> the scenery going to be nice. <laughs> Eating dinner ain't sin. <laughs> and it ain't. It ain't. But that little compromise with the flesh is like getting on an on-ramp to the highway. You can't turn around on an on-ramp. And it's designed to make you go faster. You don't even want to start out on that direction. You see, our battle with sin and our battle with the enemy has to be fought at the level of desire, not behavior, because behavior often is too late. Right? So you have to discern between what's the flesh and what's the spirit. So what's the spirit look like? Well, look then at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. Something happened when you put your faith in Jesus. First of all, you belong now to Christ. He owns you. And in giving you His Spirit and in living in you by His Spirit, He crucified the flesh. Your flesh is already defeated. It's already murdered. It's already nailed to the cross along with your sins, but we got to walk in it every day. And what that last verse means is that we are not without what we need to put the death to death the flesh. And that's important because some of our desires are strong. They're strong. They pull on us constantly. They're always speaking to us. They're shaping our thinking. They're shaping our affections. Your sin is self-interested, so it's always rationalizing. And if you're only listening to yourself, you're going to fall victim to yourself. But Christ has given us the Word. He's given us His Spirit. He lives in us, and He's given us everything we need through faith in Christ and the crucifixion of the flesh for us to win this war. I should put it this way. He's already won the war. For us to enjoy the victory of this war, the spoils of this war, by saying yes to the Spirit and no to the flesh. The most fundamental application of this sermon at this point is precisely that. We want to be Christian people who say no to the flesh and put it to death and say yes to the Spirit and walk by the Spirit of God. There's no better way to live. All the other ways lead to death. This is the way that leads to life. See, they're the immediate experience that Paul describes in Galatians 5. If we say yes to the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Our main strategy is to listen to and obey the Spirit of God and to crucify the desires of the flesh. And the good news is, if you're a Christian, is that you have already you have already had the blessing of a threefold crucifixion. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But look over at Galatians 6, verse 14. Paul says there, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord, Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Christian, when you came to Christ, your flesh was crucified, the world was crucified, and you were crucified to the world. You no longer are even alive to it, but alive in Christ and alive to the things of God. Let's enjoy it, embrace it and stand in the victory that Christ has given us. We have three enemies. We must choose a side, but Christ has already won the war. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that the crucified life is a victorious life. You have turned an instrument of torture and death into the means of the World salvation for all who believe in you. and We thank you, Lord, that um, you have defeated the world. You've defeated the flesh. You've defeated the devil so that we might live in victory. And We pray this morning as a church we would grow in this victory in our enjoyment of it, our experience of it. And we pray this morning for those who are not yet Christians that they would come into this victory by repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Grant eternal life and everlasting joy to all who cling to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.